0: Please turn back with me now to Psalm 22 and have that passage open as we begin our communion season this evening, looking at the first 11 verses of this Psalm. While all of God's Word is perfect and true and powerful, there are still nonetheless, I think, certain peaks, certain mountaintops in Scripture that perhaps tower even above the rest. Psalm 22 is certainly One of those peaks. Uh, The words of God to Moses come to mind as we approach this psalm. The place where you're standing is holy ground. This is a special psalm. Among the many accolades given to Psalm 22 over the centuries, uh, Martin Luther's seems particularly appropriate. Uh, Luther called Psalm 22 the fifth gospel. The fifth gospel. As I mentioned earlier, it's a psalm written by King David, but it is not about King David. In my previous church, I preached through most of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel, and all of 1 Kings. So I, was, I covered quite a bit of what the Bible has to tell us about the life of David. And if you read and study the life of David, you realize that while David certainly had many painful trials and griefs to endure... Is being on the run from Saul, the betrayal of his own son Absalom, all those battles that he had to go out and fight. Nonetheless, David never experienced anything quite like what he describes in this psalm. He was never pierced. He was certainly never executed by his enemies, which is what is really described in the heart of this psalm. By the power of the Holy Spirit, David wrote about things that he himself hadn't fully experienced, but which the son of David would one day experience. And that's what Psalm 22 is all about. It's about the experiences of the son of David. And that's not just my view as a Reformed Presbyterian preacher, came to see Christ in the Psalms that we sing. It's the clear teaching of the New Testament. Psalm twenty two is quoted thirteen times in the New Testament. Nine of those are in the passion narratives, the accounts of Jesus' death on the cross, if not direct quotes, then allusions uh, to Psalm twenty two, Matthew twenty seven, forty six, and Mark fifteen thirty four both record Jesus declaring the opening words of Psalm twenty two as he died on the cross. And in doing that, one writer says that Jesus was inviting us to understand his death. Through this psalm, Jesus was inviting us to understand his death through this psalm. The Gospels report the facts about what happened to Jesus uh, during his, his death on the cross. But here on the holy ground of Psalm 22, friends, we enter into the personal experiences of Christ on the cross. It's one thing to read a newspaper report if anyone still does read them or watch a TV report about a hurricane or a tsunami or or some other disaster that overtakes a group of people and you just read the facts, it hit at this time of day, the wind speed reached this amount, it, it affected this many people. It's very different to speak to an eyewitness or a survivor sitting in front of you telling you this is what it was like. As I said earlier, Psalm 20 describes Jesus, the mighty king, heading out to battle. He's pictured returning triumphant in Psalm 21. But here in Psalm 22, he's telling us what it was like. And so we're on holy ground. This is why it's good to prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table, to at least try to appreciate what it took for Christ to provide our salvation. And so across our communion season, we're going to break Psalm 22 into three sections. We'll think about Christ, the forsaken King this evening. On the Lord's Day morning, we'll think about Christ, the suffering King. And then on the Lord's Day evening, we'll think about Christ, the triumphant King. So first of all this evening, Christ, the forsaken King. And as we begin this evening, we think about Christ forsaken at the cross. Christ forsaken at the cross. Psalm 22 begins with the words that we know that Jesus declared on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? During his earthly ministry, Jesus often spoke about his relationship with the Father. This is a particular focus of the Gospel of John, although it is in all the Gospels, but particularly in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks often about how he has been sent by the Father, and he speaks of the, the unity, the oneness that he has with his Father, the perfect fellowship that he has. John 10, verse 30 I and the Father are one, fully united in our purposes, full, full of love for each other, in full agreement about their plan and purpose for the world. We believe that God is one God in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't claim to fully understand the mystery of the Trinity, but we believe the doctrine of Scripture concerning it. And Jesus spoke often of that special relationship, that divine relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And yet it was his experience at Calvary, friends, hanging on the cross that he was forsaken by the Father. The word means given up. Or abandoned, left behind. Sometimes novels or films, they revolve around this theme of the main character. An innocent sufferer who has been unjustly, cruelly, unfairly abandoned. And their quest for justice and their quest to be brought back to where they belong. On the cross, Christ was abandoned. He was given up that relationship of love and oneness between God the Father and God the Son it was forsaken at least for a time not permanently but temporarily and for the son painfully and perhaps we might never plumb the depths of exactly how and to what extent Jesus Christ was forsaken on the cross but friends he was he was, he says it here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the most painful, excruciating thing about Christ's suffering on the cross. The nails, the thorns, the suffocation, the whips beforehand, that was all physically horrendous and traumatizing. But the spiritual torture was even worse for God the Son. And perhaps in particular what brought home to Christ that he was forsaken at Calvary was that darkness that came down. It was after the three hours of darkness we read in Matthew's Gospel that he let out this cry. And with that darkness, the silence, the apparent absence of his Father God. Look at verse 1 again, Psalm 22. Why are you so far from saving me from the words Of my groaning. The word for groaning there is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament, roaring. And so these were loud groans, these were cries of anguish from Christ. He was roaring in agony on the cross. And yet for a time, those roars, those groans went unheeded. And he was surrounded by the darkness. Of his father forsaking him. There were a couple of reasons why this forsaking of God was so painful, of course, for Christ to experience. First of all, it was painful because of his own innocence. Why have you forsaken me? Me. The Son had perfectly obeyed the Father in everything, he had lived without sin. He was entirely innocent of even the the, the merest thought, the, the merest immoral thought in his mind. Never so much as harshly or selfishly shoved his brothers or sisters. For anyone else to be in this position would make sense. But Jesus had no sin. And the other reason, of course, why this forsaking was so hard to bear was because God... Is a prayer hearing. Prayer answering God ordinarily. He speaks of this in verse 4. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried. And were rescued. In you they trusted. And were not put to shame. Job. Abraham. Moses. Joshua. Joseph. All these. The prophets. All these Heroes of the faith, they had all had to experience suffering, terrible suffering in some cases. But when they had called to God, he had answered them. Even if he didn't give them exactly the answer they wanted, he made himself known to them. He spoke to them. He acknowledged them. Compare that with the experience of Christ on the cross. Verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Christ's roars of pain went unanswered at the cross. He was forsaken. And this wasn't just a feeling that he had, this wasn't just his truth, the way some people talk about their truth today. This wasn't his feelings getting in the way of the facts. Christ felt forsaken because he was forsaken, it was reality. For three hours, as Jesus suffered and eventually died, broad daylight became darkness. Friends, that was Christ going through the hell of separation from God's loving presence because that's what hell is. Some people have described hell as a place where God is not and they would say that that's what makes hell what it is, that that God is not there, but that's not quite true not that God is not present in hell, but he is present there only in anger and in holy hatred and judgment of sin. And Christ, for those hours on the cross, that's what he experienced. The hell of God's wrath poured upon him. Spurgeon says the fiercest flame of hell is the separation of the soul from God, from the love of God, from the grace and mercy of God. And that is what Christ experienced at Calvary. Why was he forsaken? Well, in a sense, we can never quite plumb the depths of the answer to that question, but friends, we know that ultimately he was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be, so that we wouldn't have to go through that hellish experience of being separated from the love of God. That's what we deserve to experience. To have God withdraw his love and withdraw his mercy and withdraw his goodness. That's what hell is. And that's what we've chosen by nature as human beings. Is what we deserve as human beings. Anyone who ends up in hell has ultimately chosen to be there. Because sin is choosing not to be with God. Not to be with him in eternity. Not to be in his loving, gracious presence. And that's what Adam and Eve chose. God warned them at the very beginning. In the day that you eat of the fruit you will surely die. And it wasn't that they immediately dropped dead physically. But what happened? They ran away when they heard the sound of the Lord God coming. They knew that they they didn't deserve any longer to be in the presence of God. There was distance and separation between them. And of course God came and graciously bridged that gap between them. But hell is a place, friends, where that gap can no longer be bridged. You remember the parable of Jesus about the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man longs for someone to be sent uh, from heaven to where he is uh, in Hades. And the answer comes back, that, that gap cannot be bridged. That chasm cannot be bridged. And that's what every sinner by nature and choice has chosen. They've chosen to be away from God. Away from his loving presence. And that's ultimately what every sinner will experience unrepentant. They will experience the forsakenness of God. It's still possible on one level for Christians to sometimes feel forsaken if we have sinned. And if we don't repent of that sin. Unrepentant sin can leave us feeling guilty and ashamed and cut off in a sense from God's presence. Of course we can immediately go and repent and we should go immediately and repent wholeheartedly of our sin. But sometimes we feel forsaken because we haven't repented of sin. Sometimes perhaps we might feel forsaken because we feel as though we're going through trial after trial without God giving us any grace. He doesn't seem to be sending any help was the experience in a sense of Job but friends how we should praise and thank God that we will not experience ultimate forsakenness that Christ has endured it so that we do not have to Spurgeon says if we feel our prayers to be unheard we feel what Jesus has felt before us and yet he kept believing We'll think more about that in due course. But if Christ could keep believing amid literally the darkest, most painful forsakenness possible, we can remember him. We give thanks for him. And we ourselves can keep believing, even when we might feel a degree of forsakenness. And this is why we are able to come to the Lord's table. This is why we know our sin really is forgiven. This is why we have heaven to look forward to. Because at the cross, Christ was forsaken in our place. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that we might be called the righteousness of God. He was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. Christ forsaken at the cross and secondly, Christ foolishly rejected at the cross. Christ foolishly rejected at the cross. Isaiah 53 he says that the suffering servant was smitten by God and afflicted that he was despised and not esteemed by men. And that same experience is described here through the pen of David in Psalm 22. If you look at verses 6 to 8. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Scorned and despised. Maybe in your lifetime you've had the experience of someone just absolutely despising you. Hopefully you haven't had that experience. But maybe, maybe some of you have. Maybe it's been a family member. Maybe it's, it's been a heartbreaking situation. Uh, and, and for reasons that you don't understand, someone has just taken against you. And even if it's just one person and maybe you have other people in your life telling you, look, I I don't know what, I don't know why they've acted like this. I don't know what the problem is. You've done nothing to provoke this from them. But even if it's just one person, uh, it leaves you feeling a sense of sadness and worry and anxiety. My friends, at Calvary, Christ was surrounded by those who despised him. By former followers who stopped following him and began mocking him. By religious leaders, by Gentile pagans. All of them united in their despising of Christ. In verse 6, under the weight of this mockery, he says he's left to feel like a worm. Worthless, useless, pointless. He'd already humbled himself by becoming a human baby. God the Son, eternal, holy, all-powerful, choosing to take on puny little human flesh, lowering himself and humbling himself. Had he not humbled himself already? But at Calvary, he's taken down further. He becomes a worm in the eyes of those who despise him says in verse 7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. This is the crowd mocking him. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. It's all mockery. God the Son, rather than receiving men's praise, which he deserved, he becomes the butt of men's jokes. Surrounded by scoffers and mockers and haters. common misconception of Calvary is that it was some idyllic hillside, that it was some picturesque setting. And some of the Christian artwork and music doesn't really help in this regard. There is a green hill far away and so on. Uh, There's no evidence of it being some idyllic spot. In fact, most commentators believe Calvary would have been along a busy roadside, uh, the equivalent of one of our town Main thoroughfares leading into the town or the city. Somewhere where lots of people would have been bustling past. Uh, There's evidence to suggest that the Romans liked to do this. That they liked to put people, crucifixion victims, in public thoroughfares. as a bit of a warning uh, to people. This is what will happen to you if you uh, cross the empire. Imagine walking the streets of Jermore. And everyone is mocking you. Oh here she comes. Do you know what she believes? Do you know what his God is supposed to be able to do for him? Do you know some of the beliefs that they have? No sign of their God turning up to deal with us. Let's see a miracle. Let's see God get you out of this. Here's Christ, the model believer, being mocked for his faith. Perhaps in that moment Satan... Was tempting Christ. We know that he was tempting Christ. But maybe he was tempting him to think in that moment. they're right to mock me for my faith. Where is my God? Why doesn't he help? The son of God. Lowered himself to become a man. He was brought even lower again. By the taunts and accusations. And mockery of his enemies. One preacher says. What a contrast between. I am. And I am a worm. We've thought about those I am sayings of Christ. I am the light of the world. I and the Father are one. I am who I am. The eternal God. And then he says here I am a worm. What makes it all the worst of course. Is that many of those who mocked Christ. Should have known better. Some of those who surrounded him. Were former followers. People who had seen his miracles perhaps in the early days of his ministry people who had followed him hoping to see more miracles and then got a bit bored and fed up and just began to mock also in that crowd of mockers were the religious leaders men who at least in theory knew their scriptures and should have seen that the they should have seen the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 right before their eyes The mockers were the real fools. And there are still plenty of fools around us today. To refuse to believe in the Christ who suffered and died, that is to mock Christ. To refuse to repent of sin is to say, I don't care about what Christ did at the cross. What difference does it make to me? I don't need a silly sufferer like that. This mockery comes out in the the flippant use of the name of Christ today, which, as we know, sadly, is just a swear word to many people. It doesn't mean anything to them. It's just a space filler in their conversation. Ignorantly or not, they they mock him. Unbelievers foolishly reject him. For many in this country, the, the gospel has been ringing in their ears all their lives. They have been told... Again and again. This is the only way to escape God's judgment. And they refuse to believe. And they mock and they think they know better than the God who made them. But for those of us who are Christians. The rejection of Christ and the cross should again. Cause us to pause and worship. We might experience some mockery. Maybe some of you have experienced mockery at some point in your life. For your Christian faith maybe you've been trying to speak to a family member they just don't want to hear it maybe you've been on the doors in Jermore and people shut the door in a scoff friends how much more has Christ been mocked and despised might it be in the times of our own rejection that we understand and appreciate our saviour's love for us all the more might it be in the times when we are the object of ridicule that we more fully appreciate the sacrifice it took for us to be saved from ridicule and to have the prospect of glory where we will be welcomed and we will be blessed and we will be, uh, we will be welcomed in as part of the family in heaven someday rather than mocked and despised. If ever you suffer for the sake of the name, friends, do as Christ's apostles eventually did. Rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer for the name. (coughs) And worship God thankful for what your Savior went through for you. Christ forsaken at the cross. Christ foolishly rejected at the cross. And thirdly and finally this evening. Christ's faith despite being forsaken and rejected at the cross. Christ's faith despite being forsaken and rejected. At the cross, One of the key words of these opening 11 verses of Psalm 22 is the word trust. Uh, three times in verses 4 to 5, Christ through David says that his fathers, God's people down through the centuries, they trusted in God. He says as well in verse 9 that God made him trust while he was a little infant. Verse 9, you made me trust at my mother's breasts. Despite being forsaken by God and rejected by men, what we find here at Calvary is Christ continues to trust in his Father. Hebrews 12 describes Jesus as, as the perfecter or the forerunner of our faith. He is our model believer, if you like. I mentioned earlier that Jesus could have been tempted to believe that the mockery of his enemies was justified. He could have been tempted to think why doesn't God save is is my God not good anymore? He could have been tempted to believe that, but he didn't believe that. Jesus heard in the mocking of his enemies the hiss of the serpent, that old enemy, the dragon. Satan was having a final swipe at Jesus through the mockery of the crowd. Maybe said this before, it's 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 a curious thing to read the account of Jesus' passion and And to consider at what point did Satan suddenly realise I don't want him to die on the cross. At what point did Satan suddenly realise I need him to get off that cross. And in the mockery and in the calls to come down. To the calls to ask for his father to to save him, to send angels to help him. Jesus knew that the serpent was taking his final few swipes. He knew that though he was forsaken by the Father, he still had faith in the Father's plan, faith that the Father was working to that eternal plan of God the Father, Son, and Spirit to save a people from their sins. The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews two eighteen, "For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." He, he suffered when he was tempted. But he didn't give in when he was tempted. He knew that his life and his death were entirely in his father's hands. That his being offered up was part of his father's plan. Again if you look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. Says in verse 10. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Notice the, the personal language there. My God. His whole his whole life has been in the hands of his father, his whole life has been consecrated to his father's will to bring glory to his father. And he continues to believe here that he will uh, that his his life is in his father's hands. And so in verse eleven, even though he's already cried out, even though his groaning and roaring has gone unanswered, he cries out again in faith. Verse eleven Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. The psalmist, Jesus, the believer, might feel forsaken. God might have withdrawn his presence. But a lifelong trust in God means that Jesus continues to cry out to God. He knows that God is good. He knows that his way is the only way. He knows that glory is coming. And so his faith sees him through. Did the father hear the son's prayer? That afternoon at Calvary? Yes, he did. Jesus did cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then a short while later, with his last breath, the Gospels tell us that he cried out again, Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's Christ's faith seeing him through to the very end. And notice that he goes from crying out, my God, to my Father. That more personal word right at the end with his work finished. He knew that when he closed his eyes on the cross, he would open them in paradise, reunited with his Father. So friends, do you see, yes, the forsakenness of Christ here in Psalm 22, but also the faith of Christ, seeing him through and if Jesus could have faith then, if he could have faith in the midst of the forsakenness of the cross, we can still have faith today, knowing that we will never be forsaken in the way that he was, knowing that in, in our darkest hours, in our greatest times of need, our Father does and will hear us and will answer us according to his perfect will. Why? Because Christ has purchased us. He was forsaken to guarantee that we will never be forsaken. Because he had faith. We can have faith. And so when you find it hardest to have faith. Remember the cross of Christ. Remember the love your saviour and your God has for you. Remember that Christ kept on trusting. Kept on believing. And was rewarded. And that your faith will be rewarded too. Behold what manner of love is this. The apostle John says. That we should be called sons of God. Here's what it took for us to be called sons of God. It took for the son to be forsaken. It took for him to suffer foolish rejection from his enemies. It took him to have the strongest faith. So that we could be saved. And so in Psalm 22, friends, we're on holy ground and yet we're free to come to this part of Scripture. We're free to come to Calvary and to meditate upon what happened there. And we're also as believers free to come to the table and celebrate what our Saviour has done for us. We're free to come to our Father any time in faith and make our pleas to Him. How much does the forsakenness and yet the faithfulness of Christ mean to you surely love so amazing so divine demands our souls our lives are all amen